Hear, you deaf. Look, you blind, and see. Who is blind but my servant, and deaf like the messenger I send? Who is blind like the one committed to me, blind like the servant of the Lord? You have seen many things, but have paid no attention. Your ears are open, but you hear nothing. It pleased the Lord for the sake of his righteousness, to make his law great and glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted, all of them trapped in pits or hidden away in prisons. They have become plunder, with no one to rescue them. They have been made loot, with no one to say, send them back. Which of you will listen to this or pay close attention in time to come? Who handed Jacob over to become loot, and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned? For they would not follow his ways, they did not obey his law. So he poured out on them his burning anger, the violence of war. It enveloped them in flames, yet they did not understand. It consumed them, but they did not take it to heart. Speak to us through your word this morning in a powerful way that brings us to Christ. Amen. Amen. Thanks a lot, Ross. Hoping we can get a little slideshow up there, um, and we'll try to go through that. Maybe if we can, we'll see how we go. We're going to have a look at Isaiah over the next five weeks. There are just some sections of Isaiah, not the whole thing. But I thought if we do get the slide, ah, we got it up. We're going to do a. Uh, it'll just be a real short introduction. Is that readable? That's pretty good. It's pretty good. So we'll start from there before we get into. Um, Isaiah 42. Isaiah was a a prophet, one of the longest books you find in the Bible, quite a prolific writer. Um, As you can see, he appeared at at a, he he prophesied at quite a critical time in Israel's history, 8th century BC, so that's around 800 years before Jesus. And his message was one of judgment and it demanded repentance. As Isaiah was beginning his ministry, the Assyrians, the Assyrians, you think of Baghdad, Nineveh, Euphrates River, sort of north and east, about eight or nine hundred kilometers away from from, um, Israel. Doesn't sound like much in our context, does it? That's about a day's drive. I guess if you're on a camel with a great big army and you had to follow the rivers... Took a bit longer than that, but that's the Assyrians were starting to become the most assertive and dominant force within that area. Um, and they were in the process of building an empire that threatened to fo- swallow up Israel. Let's go to the next slide, thanks. And this gives you a bit of the timeline. Um, you can see that 739, they figure um, Isaiah started speaking. You can see that um, he was quite extensive. He covered one, two, three, four kings um, that he covered during the time that he was a prophet in in Israel. Um, And you can see that at the end of 
Isaiah's life at 693, I think I can't quite see it from here. It was still another hundred years after he finished his prophecies when the Assyrians finally occupied and conquered Israel. And then you can see it's another 700 years before the coming of Jesus. So that's the time frame that when he was talking about. So while if you're listening to a prophet, it seems immediate. It's this quite a centrified view that that gets tighter and tighter the farther and farther it goes. Um, We'll just go to the next slide, thanks. So Israel was in a bad time at this time. It was quite a conflicted nation. Um, it was on a, as a second point, it was on a downward spiral, both politically and spiritually. Um, the, uh, remember which one it was, the third king down there, Ahaz, there's an account of him in, um, in Kings. He actually traveled north into Syria, what we now know as Syria, into Damascus to meet with the guy who has an unpronounceable name, the king of Assyria that had come down. It's one of those uh, tiger plus or something like that. While he was there, he goes to the temple with the king of Assyria and he's, they have a big altar out the front of this temple and he says, that's a great looking altar. He draws a diagram of it puts it on a courier on a camel or a horse and sends it back to Jerusalem and says, I want to build one of these. And so the high priest, this is is what it outreads, the high priest proceeds to get one of these things built, moves the one designed by God way back in the times of Moses, moves it out of the way around the other side of the temple and plonks the new one there. So it looks like a really good altar for a foreign visiting king. That's the sort of times we're living in. There's this just bits of compromise going on all the time. Um, and there was just war around them. The Assyrians were on the move and they were conquering nations. Just the next slide, thanks. The people were spiritually insensitive. Um, as it says there, that quote from um, chapter 1 of... Isaiah, the ox knows his master, the donkey his owner's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. They suffered from malnutrition of the spirit. You know, Isaiah tells them, stop bringing meaningless offerings. They've got a, they've got a foreign altar in front, of the, in front of the temple. Your incest is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations. I cannot bear your evil assemblies. And they'd lost perspective. That other quote from the first chapter of Isaiah. See how this faithful city has become a harlot or prostitute. She once was full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her. But now murderers. This is the nation That's in spiritual turmoil. And it's this nation that Isaiah went to speak to. You've got to understand, Jerusalem wasn't just the city of God at that time. There was Solomon's temple was there. It was a fantastic building. 
Uh, if you know anything about it, it came in with great fanfare. It took 30 years to build or something like that. They slaughtered eight or 900 animals um, when they consecrated it. It was a great time of rejoicing. But at the same, over that same period of time, Solomon built temples and idols for all his wives. He had hundreds. Um, and they were still there. They were still being worshipped. Um, you know, one of the kings that were mentioned, thanks, I think that'll be great for that um, slideshow. One of the kings, Uzziah, he wanted to assert his authority over, over Jerusalem. So what does he do? He takes it upon himself to go into the temple and to offer his own sacrifices on the altar in front of the temple of God. This is, every Jew knows, only the Levites can offer sacrifices. But he says, it'll make me look great. It'll, it'll show that I'm in. And so he does it. And, that's, and he thought that was okay. That's the king of the nation thinking that is an okay thing to do. Um, Ahaz, his grandson, was desperate for God's favor. So he offered up his own son as a burnt sacrifice to one of the Baals. And he was also the guy that thought it was a really good thing to build a brand new altar and shove it in front of the temple of God and put the other one around the side. It was this real mixed religious thing going on. Believe it or not, in Jerusalem at that time, they still had this rod with a bronze serpent on it. It's the same bronze serpent that Moses had had them cast and made in the desert when they were wandering around out of Egypt when they were being attacked by serpents and snakes. And God saved them. And he said, you know, make this serpent, put it on a pole, stick it up, and anybody who sees it and gets close to it um, will be kept. And that's what he did. I'm sure they replaced that stick over the years. I mean, we're talking four or five hundred years. But it had morphed from the salvation of the Lord for the people of Israel into a thing to be worshipped. So they had an entire temple there and people were bowing down and making offerings to the serpent of Moses. It was, it was a mixed community, a lot of mixed messages going on. People were not, the entire people of Israel were not dedicated to God. They were dedicated to all sorts of gods and all sorts of idols. And this is the situation that he speaks the word of God into. And we're going to have a look at a series of prophecies that are called the servant songs. There's um, five, four of them. We're going to do it over five weeks. Um, and it speaks about a savior coming um, who will not just save Israel, but It'll actually be larger than that. It will, he will be the salvation of the nations. And this was all done about 700 years before Jesus was born. And I guess the question is, can God save his people? That's the question. If you have a look, you've got to go backwards a little bit. Um, and it's always good. It's, it's always terrible to really pick up in the middle of someone's prophetic utterances and just... Stab in. So let's go back to chapter 41. 
And this is going to be a really, really quick run through, so you'll have to read fast. And Grinda, we're glad you read so much, but I'm only going to focus on the first 10 verses <laughs> of 42. In 41, Isaiah gives this prophecy. And um, he's, in verse 2, he says, Who has stirred up one from the east, calling him in righteousness to his service? He hands nations over to him and subdues kings before him. He turns them to dust with his sword. There's a conqueror coming. And he's coming from the east. And he's been called by God. God-ordained conqueror. Going to come and smash up these nations. That's basically what he's saying. And if you go a little bit farther down in verse 5 to 7. The Gentiles. the Well, it's not even the Gentiles. Some people, they know how to resolve this. How do you protect yourselves from a conqueror? How do you prevent yourselves from being overrun by foreigners? Well, you renew your God. That's what you do. You renew your God. So as it says there, the islands have seen it in fear. The islands are the people at the outer end of the earth, the people you don't know about. They knew there were other people in the world, but they just had no idea who they were. So... Isaiah uses this phrase, the islands, the very ends of the earth. They've seen this and tremble. They approach and come forward. They help each other. Down in verse 7, the craftsmen encourage the goldsmith who smooths it out with the hammer. They strike it with the anvil and they do a bit of welding and they nail it down and they make sure that the idol won't topple over because it's really, really bad form and a terrible bad omen. If you're in the middle of praying and offering sacrifices and your idol's so old that it falls over. So you've got to renew it. They are looking for protection from their gods. That's how they want to protect themselves from this coming um, conqueror that's coming through. But down in verse is in 41, in 8 to 16... It's not for the people of Israel to do this. They are to put their trust in God. He he talks in verse 8. He says, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I've chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend. He's talking about the intimacy of the relationship between the Israelites and their God. You are the descendants of my best friend, Abraham. He says how he took them from the ends of the earth. He says, do not fear, I will save you. And then he goes on and he says, let's put these idols to the test. Who can really save you? And then that's in 21 to 29. We'll just get a a few highlights of these. Um, In 21, he says, present your case, set forth your arguments. Bring in your idols and tell us what's going to happen. So he's saying to them, look at prophesy. Tell us how this is going to work. How are you going to save us? He says, you know, tell us about the things that have passed. Interpret the past for us. Tell us about the future. Down there in verse 23, in the middle of that, (laughs) I love it. He says, do something, you know, good or bad. We don't care. Do something. Just don't stand there. Um, And in verse 24, he sums it up. You're less than nothing. 
you're actually utterly useless. And then farther down, um, in um, in verse 28, again he says, let's see how this salvation is going to work. And he says, I look, but there's no one, in verse 28, no one among you to give counsel. There's no one to give an answer when I ask them. He says, that, and this is like the, the convocation of the gods. And the one true God says, well, what's your ideas? What's your counsel? Give me advice. And no one speaks. And he says they're false. Their deeds amount to nothing. Their images are but wind and confusion. Can God save his people? He's talked a big talk. He's called out the other gods as useless. But what's his plan? That's the question. And in 42 verse 1... He says, what does he say? This is what, um, sorry, I'm too far ahead of myself. Here is my servant. I know know, um, Hebrew scholar, other people that I read tell me this. It's bigger than just here is my servant. It's a a behold, look. This is, have a a gander at this, we we might say in, in Australianese. And it's, it's in stark contrast to the non-performing gods. You know, he says in, in 41.24, he says, look, or get a gander at these idols. They're less than nothing. And in 29, he says, look at them. They're false. And it's the same expression. He now says, look, here's my servant. It's that emphatic Here he comes. You might trust in your idols for salvation. And you might trust in other gods for security. But they are absolutely useless. It's a bit like, you know, to put it grossly, trusting in farts and confusions. Wind. You know, that's what it is. So he's saying, my salvation is different. Because I am bringing my servant Whom I uphold. So, this is what Isaiah sees God's salvation is going to look like. The first thing is, it is through a person. Look at the relationship between God and his servant. What does he say of him? He says, He's my servant who I uphold, the chosen one in whom I delight. He's the right. Man for the position. I don't know if any of you people um, employ other people. um, Or maybe you've been an employee. And and you've been chosen to do a job. And quite often, that has nothing to do with whether or not your boss likes you. Or whether you like your employee or not. It's more about, you're just the right person for the job. If you need a head-kicking job to be done, you go find a head-kicker. They go, do it. It's not that you like them. <laughs> and it's not that you, you're a personal friend of theirs. They're the right person for the job. The servant's better than that. And he's more than that. He's not only the right person for the job. 
He's the twinkle in God's eye. How's that? In whom I delight. It's the same imagery of, man, look at I'm a brand new grandfather, so give me a break here. You know, you pick up this little pint-sized person that's done nothing, and you can't help smiling. You just can't help being joyful and sending too many photographs to too many people. And, and all this kid's done is, you know, smiled. You know, it, that's the imagery here. This is, this is the servant in whom God delights. He can't help but be just happy and smiling every time he talks about him. It's, he talked about, in 41, he talked about, you know, the people of Israel being the descendants of Abraham, my friend. So they're related to him. This is a much more intimate relationship. This guy's my good friend. He's, he's my joy. That's the relationship. God's salvation is coming through a person who is the joy of God. And what's he going to do? Have a look there in verse 1. He's going to bring justice to the nations. This is a term we don't really use anymore in our democratic societies. In a kingdom with a king, the king's word is law, literally. When the king speaks, when he makes a decision, when he says a sentence, that's law. That's, that's justice. We, don't, we, we, we think of justice in different terms more. So when we say he will bring justice to the nations, most often we think about right and wrong punishment acceptance. But this phrase has that, but it has more than that. This is bringing the word of the king, the judgment of the king, to the nations. So another way to put it is, if you bring the word of the Lord, the word of God, to the nations, they have received justice because they have the word of God, the, the definitive word of God. So it's not so much about whipping the nations into line, but it's to give them the word, for that is justice. And isn't it interesting? It's not just to the Israelis. He is bringing justice to all the nations. And it's the second part. So God's salvation is universal. It's for all people of all nations. It's through one person. It's universal. It's for all people. How about, do you remember back there in, um, in 41, 22 and 23? The nations, they're desperate for justice. They want a word from the Lord. That's why they're you know, nailing down the altar to make sure he stands upright and they're renewing the gold on him. And they're, they are desperate to know what the word of God is. They want to know the outcome. They want to know the future. You know, and then in, if you go back, you know, Isaiah says, he says, these aren't gods and they're not going to give you good counsel. They will not give you justice because 
They are not the arbitrators. They are not the true God. So they, they cannot give you justice. So we all want it. God has chosen his servant to bring true justice, the word of God, to the nations. Have a look in verses 2 and 3 there of, verse, of chapter 42. Isaiah reveals how God's servant will bring this about. It's really fascinating, isn't it? It's, it's all sort of in the negative. He says he's not going to bring any attention to himself. He won't accost people or startle them with, with loud shouts or, or a great big um, disturbance in the streets to, to attract people to him. He's not going to crush those that are broken or reject those who have given up. God's salvation is low-key. I don't know how else to put this. It's just under-the-radar stuff. Um, It comes with no fanfare and no promotion. If you have a look in um, chapter 3 there, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. It implies that he, will also, he can also bind up the broken reed, that which is broken. And he can also reignite that which is on the verge of going out. Um, that wick snuffing out. Imagine you've been camping with a lantern full of caro, and it gets lower and lower and lower and lower and lower, and then it's just a little bit of smoke coming out. That's the imagery here. If you have a look down in verse 4, he uses the same imagery. In English, it's, it's, we use different words for it, but the word falter, when he says there, he will not falter, literally means burns low. He will not burn low. So he's not going to be, he's not going to run out of steam, run out of puff, um, like a lamp to go out. Um, Discouraged or be discouraged literally means easily bruised is, is, the, is, the, is one of the other meanings in the Hebrew. So you can see that it's a play on phrases. He will, he will not break the, the bruised reed, but he will not be easily bruised himself. He will not snuff out the smoky wick. But he's not going to burn low himself. The implication is that God's servant is going to experience all the vagaries of life like we do. He might be set apart for purpose. He's not set apart for living. It's not a special life. But all the troubles that we have, the disappointments, the physical disabilities we end up with or we get born with, the, the disillusionments with people and people letting us down, all that will be part and parcel of the servant of God's life. But he won't falter and he won't be discouraged. And isn't it lovely, that last little section there? In his law, the islands will put their hope. So it's in his teaching, the far ends of the earth, the Gentiles, us, 
We are a long ways away from Israel, believe you me. We would be the islands. Um, we will put our hope. That, that is the implication. It's almost saying you're part of this. Can you see Jesus in this description? Is it clicking any things that you've heard about in the New Testament? He is the chosen one. The one in whom God delights. The twinkle in God's eye. If you can, turn over to Luke chapter 4. There's a lovely story that just parallels this so very, very well. It's in Luke chapter 4 from verses 16 to 30. I'm debating whether to read it or just to tell it to you. I'll try to tell it to you and you can sort of read it and listen to me as I go. It's Saturday, synagogue day, Nazareth. This is a town where Jesus grew up. So he spent his entire youth and early adulthood in Nazareth, in this town. And it's synagogue day. He goes to the synagogue like the vast majority of, of all um, Jews would. In there, they ask him to read a passage from the scroll. And they open it up, and it's a passage out of Isaiah, which we know of as Isaiah 42, the same one we've read today. And he reads it, and, if you, and down there in verse 18 of Luke chapter 4, um, you can see it there. In 17 he says... Um, They gave him the scroll to the prophet Isaiah, was handed to him, and he unrolled it, and he found the place where it was written. And he read it, and he said, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, and recovery of sight for the blind, and to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then unlike me, he sat down. I'm sorry, I'm not going to do it. And, and they all thought, well, what's next? And then he stands up again and he says, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your presence right here, right now. And then he proceeded to sit down again. And, you know, he is saying to all the people that he grew up with, in that town, saying, I'm the chosen one. That's what he's telling them. He's saying, I'm this guy. I am the servant of the Lord. I am the twinkle in God's eye. That's what he's telling them. I am the one in whom God delights. And then, as you could well imagine, they're a little bit unconvinced. And he tells them two stories that they're very, very familiar with. And one of them is about a prophet called Elijah. I better go back to this and make sure. Elijah. And this is in uh, verse 24. Elijah was called by God to go into Syria, which is a Gentile nation, which was actually at war with Israel at the time, and to go to one of their army commanders and to say to him, God has called me here to heal you today. Because he had leprosy, he had a skin disease. 
And Elijah proceeded to take him down into the river and put him in the river a few times and he came out clean. And then he told them another story. And it was about Elijah. And there was a drought in Israel. And to stay alive, Elijah went to the Phoenicians, a little bit north of Israel. And he stayed with a widow there. And while he stayed with that widow, her jar of oil never emptied. So she was able to continue to have nutrition for herself and to sell it to her friends and be able to live. And Jesus, with both these stories, said, why is it, why is it that Elijah didn't heal anybody with leprosy in Israel? Why did he go to a Gentile and heal him? And then he asked them the question, he says, why is it? Were there no worthy widows in Israel? So he had to go to a Gentile lady to help her? In their context, the implication was, I am going to other nations. And just by giving those two stories and giving that interpretation... The entire synagogue, that's like all you people here, grab me, drag me up to those rocks on Hermit's Cave, and you're going to throw me off. They could not countenance that, A, this guy said, I am the servant of God, and that, B, I am taking the word of God to the nations and not just to Israel. Because that was what Jesus was reminding them of. That all along, since times of Elijah, before Isaiah, God was always in the business of giving his word to the nations. And they could not countenance. And they, they, they tried to kill him. And they, um, as it says there, um, in 28, in Luke chapter 4, all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. And they got up. And they drove him out of town. They took him to the brow of Hermit's Cave, on which the town was built, in order to throw him off the cliff. He walked through the crowd and went on his way. Can you see the parallels there? He brought the word of God to Israel. That's what Jesus did. Jesus is the justice to the nation. He is the word of God. And he came to Israel. He was there in Nazareth with his own people, explaining to them the word of God. But Jesus also claimed to be the word of God to the Gentiles. That was his whole reason why he told them those two stories that got him slightly upset. You know, he will be justice to all the nations. And isn't it interesting? You know, uh, if you go back to um, Isaiah 42, that verse 4, he says, you know, um, he will not falter or be discouraged until he establishes justice on earth. Jesus continued this. It didn't dissuade him. 
I'm thinking if you guys took me out to try to throw me off a hermit's cave, I might not be back here next week. You know, I, I could be more um, discerning on what I might say and who I might associate with. Um, Jesus didn't. It didn't dissuade him. He continued, you know, going down and healing people and talking with people and telling them about the kingdom of God. It did not dissuade him. He did not falter. This is in the negative, but isn't it interesting? Jesus didn't call down the wrath of God on Nazareth. He didn't burn them up. He didn't say, how dare you do this to the servant of God? It literally says at the end there, he just walked through them and continued on his way. I don't know what that looks like. But it's, it's the implication is it's what's in verse 2 and verse 3 of Isaiah 42. He didn't shout or cry out. He didn't make a big noise for himself. He just continued on his way. It's that God's salvation is just low key. It's just under the radar. And I guess, you know, the question I have today is, can God save his people? And it is an emphatic yes. He can. He will. He has. But can we welcome God's chosen one, the servant of the Lord? Can we follow Jesus, the twinkle in God's eye? You know, it's easy to remember verse 1, isn't it? Here is my servant who I am uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. It speaks of being filled with the Holy Spirit of God, of delivering justice to those who don't know God. It's the imagery of heroism, of giving to the needy, of people appreciating what you brought, the empowerment of the Spirit that makes you special. I remember in my mid-twenties, I was married to Jen then, um, I think it was probably two weeks, I prayed and sought God for the gift of tongues so that I could praise him in a special way. I look back now and I also understand I also wanted to have the evidence of the Spirit of God on me. I never received the gift of tongues. Um, And I look back now and I think, you know, there's that element of personal empowerment going on in there in my prayers when I look back. We go down to verse 2. We can tend to gloss over this one a little bit. You know, he will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. I struggle with ego. You know, I find it so easy to gain personal affirmation from literally doing this, preaching, public speaking, absorbing the attention of others that are focused on me. The servant is not like that. You won't even know he's there. He's the guy at the party that nobody remembers was at the party because he's the quiet one. And then I really stumble with verse 3. 
When he says a bruised reed, he will not break. The smouldering wick, he will not snuff out. Because I want to be close. I know it's in me. I want to be close to others that are strong in life and faith. I want to be around people who burn bright for God with enthusiasm and with passion. And I just find it really easy to distance myself from broken people, from those who seem to have lost their way. It's just too easy for me to do that. Who did Jesus find to deliver the word of God to the nations? Fishermen. Fishermen's a good choice, isn't it? These guys had never left the Sea of Galilee in their entire lives. And Jesus decides that these are really good candidates to literally spread the word of God to all the nations of the world. Um, that is, that's low key. That's, that's under the radar stuff. Who was God's choice of friends? There's a woman called Mary, Mary of Magdala, Mary Magdalene. If you look at current movies and musicals, She's a beautiful woman with a great singing voice. And, you know, she's under 27 years old. He cast, what, seven demons out of her? And you're trying to tell me that she's a beautiful, unflawed woman? This woman would have been, flawed would be the best word. You don't have seven demons in you and not come out flawed. Um, But he said, no, you'll be a good friend, under the radar stuff. This week, we had a, Jenny and I had a good friend die. She died of old age, 84, May, May. Um, been part of the church in Burke for, oh, look at, I was a kid. I grew up with her, with her oldest daughter. May was under the radar. She Lived in a um, council home her entire life, paid rent, never owned a home in her life. She, I think she owned a car for a while, walked everywhere, large, overweight. Her family's a disaster. I don't know how else to put it. Just dysfunctional in the extreme. She lived with her Husband with her partner for 25 years. Because she'd found Jesus, she thought, I need to get married. And she finally convinced Cliffy to marry her when she was in her 50s. And then he proceeded to leave her in three years. Her kids have come to see her before she died. Their conversations about trying to get the key card. Making sure they can get to the house to see what there is. It's just just sad. But you know what? That woman has friends all over the place that know her for a woman of God. There's definitely flaws all through it. But she has been a child of God, a follower, the servant of God, for the last... 20 or 30 years, and she has displayed that 
as she can, as she has. And I was thinking about it doing this sermon. She is, she is one of those broken reeds that's, you know, not quite standing up straight. But the servant isn't going to snap that off. You know, candle burns low because life's just been hard. Just been hard. And it just about goes out. But he doesn't snuff it out and just discounts her. I know, to my shame, I did as a young guy. I thought, you know, this is just not who I need to hang out with. And she's an older woman. She's my mother's age. But to my shame, you know, I did not give her the honour and the place that she deserved as a, as a true woman of God. Um, Jesus has called us to follow him, to model our lives on him. And I wanted to share those stories with you because it will be an uncertain journey. We don't know how this is going to go. We don't know how, what he will call us to. But it will lead to God being praised and his justice going out to others. Let me pray. Then do we have another, we've got a song? That'll be great. Lord Jesus. <coughs> you are the twinkle in God's eye. His chosen one. Lord, as you've called us to follow you. As you show us what that means for us personally. For us corporately as a group. For us nationally. Lord, may we be serious about being faithful to do what you call us to do. Amen.